Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's episode of the podcast, we're looking at the readings for Monday in Holy Week. So the day after Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, which the church traditionally has even called Fig Monday. And the readings are going to be the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 through 10, the epistle from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. The gospel is, well, a lot. We have two choices for your pastor to make, as he can go with Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, all the way through chapter 27, verse 66, or John chapter 12, verses 1 through 23. Now, for the sake of this particular podcast, I've already done that Matthew two chapters section in the Passion Sunday account for year A, so I'm going to bring that forward into this episode. Admittedly, it is about an hour long, so if you're reading or listening to this fresh and you've already recently listened to that, we're going to do Isaiah 50 first, then Hebrews 9, then you can kind of jump an hour forward in the podcast and we'll pick up with John chapter 12 to conclude. So this episode will be about two hours in length. Uh, simply because we're seeking to study God's word that's been put before us. And it's the whole passion narrative of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is before us. So as we look at our Old Testament text then for this Monday of Holy Week, we have Isaiah 50 verses 5 through 10. We don't have this specific reading elsewhere in the lectionary, but very close Passion Sunday of year A is going to be chapter 50, verses 4 through 9A, and then proper 19 in year B, so mid to late summer, is going to give you Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 10. So both of the other times this text shows up, it starts at verse 4 and covers most of what we're going to read today as well, but not identical, so I'm doing a new episode just on these verses. Now, this text would qualify as one of the four servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah's prophecy is pretty well categorized now at this point of having these four spots that very specifically talk about this servant of God, even a suffering servant. And this poetry or song about him is going to be Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, chapter 49, verses 1 through 6, chapter 50, verses 4 through 11, then probably the most famous of them, chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. So this is the third of the four servant songs. It is one paragraph, so let's go ahead and read our text. And the servant is Jesus. So certainly keep that in mind as we read this through. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear. And I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Who will declare me guilty? 
Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. So again, this is Jesus that we're talking about. So the Lord Yahweh has opened my ear. Jesus' ear. As Yahweh, the Father or the Trinity, depending on how you want to describe that, sends Jesus Christ in the flesh to take on flesh, the incarnation. Jesus is both God and man, and he is God's servant. To not do his own will, but to follow the Father's will. And so his ears are open to listen to his Father's word and to do his Father's bidding. And so he was not rebellious. He did not turn back from the way that God gave him to go. He kept the law of God perfectly, and we know why. He kept the law perfectly because we had failed to. And because we had failed to, the punishment was going to be death, and Jesus is going to take that death upon himself in order that you and I don't have to. He keeps the law perfectly in order to take our place in death, in his death upon the cross. Verse 6 and 7 are going to sound a lot like Psalm 22, uh, another kind of account in the Old Testament that is easy to compare with Christ's passion account in the Gospels, again, such as Matthew 26 and 27. So he gives his back to those who strike. We think of the flogging that Pilate orders of Jesus and the, the whip that would have struck his back. The passion of the Christ displays what that might have looked like very uh, grotesquely and vividly. He gives his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Cheeks, plural, notice that, as maybe Sermon on the Mount connection, Matthew 5, Jesus talking about how he turns the other cheek. So to be without one's beard was a thing of shame. And Jesus is willing to, to experience at least the shame of man in our place. He doesn't experience true shame, as we see in verse 7, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Hid not his face from disgrace and spitting. So same thing with the shame of the beard. Notice here he is disgraced. And yet in verse 7, he's neither disgraced nor put to shame. So we need to unpack these words a little bit. But first, we'll do that in verse 7. First, the idea that he is indeed going to have these things happen to him. That 24-hour window. So the Hebrew mind, the Jewish mind, the day begins at sundown. There was evening and morning the first day. The book of Genesis creation account lays it out that way. And they look at it that way too. So Jesus and the disciples, they have supper on Monday, Thursday, and then after that they go out to the garden, Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives, and there Jesus will pray for, it seems like, a few hours, and then he will be approached by Judas, betrayed, arrested, he'll be brought for a false trial, he'll be taken before Pilate, he will be taken before the soldiers, and in various places he will be struck, he will be spared upon it would certainly be disgraceful amongst men however 
he recognizes that Yahweh helps him. And so, therefore, he has not been disgraced. Wait, didn't he just say he was? Well, again, in the earthly sense, yes, but what happens? What's the outcome? Does Jesus Christ get disgraced and shamed and killed and then stay there? No. The opposite. He rises from the dead. And what is his disgrace and shame amongst men to the Christian church is a beautiful treasure. We don't look upon the cross in our general view of the cross as Christians and what it means for us. We don't look at it as a negative. We look at it as our salvation, that Christ was willing to die for us to take away our sins. It is the moment where he kills, slays the devil, that old evil dragon. Genesis 3, that he would put enmity between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring, and that he would crush his head and the serpent would bruise his heel. It is on the cross that Jesus pierces the devil through because the devil's power over you and me is the ability to accuse us of sin and that has been taken away by Jesus' death on the cross. Sin has no more power over us and because sin has no more power over us, nor does the devil. He has been undone. So it is not a disgrace or a shame to Jesus. All right, we need to unpack those words a little bit more, I believe. Notice the word disgrace. Grace. Negated, essentially. I don't think we use this word in English today the same way that it is, I guess, etymologically designed. To be a disgrace is to be a laughingstock, to be looked down upon by others. But grace means gift. And so it would be like being ungifted to have the gifts removed. Either way you want to look at it, Jesus can't be disgraced. He cannot have the gifts of God removed from him because he is God. But he also cannot ultimately be looked down upon because on the last day, Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. There is no disgracing Jesus. He is king over all. And to him all must give account. So God helps him. God holds him up. God restores him. God raises him from the dead. And so he sets his face like a flint, a hard stone, unchangeable. Luke 9, verse 51, that Jesus set his face in that moment to go towards Jerusalem, and we would add specifically to the cross as we talk about it. And while that is the most shameful death that mankind in that era had ever envisioned, to be publicly humiliated so, Yet Jesus knows that he will not be put to shame because, again, he can't be. Shame is essentially when man's hope has been proved to be empty. And so if I set my hope in my career and making a bunch of money so that I'll always be able to provide for myself, and then I get fired, 
then I have been shamed. My hope was set in something that failed, and the people around me might mock me for it. But you can't put Jesus to shame because, again, he is king, and he rules over all, and he has defeated everyone, and as 1 Corinthians 15 says, all of his enemies will be subject to him, placed beneath his feet. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. That would be God the Father who vindicates his Son. Uh, the threefold definition of vindication, to clear of blame, to defend, or to demonstrate the value of. God vindicates his Son. Jesus was innocent. He was the perfect sacrifice. The Father defends his Son, again, from the devil and raises him from the dead. He demonstrates the value of Jesus by raising him from the dead, but also by raising him up on the cross that the whole world would look to him. The cross meant to be his undoing by the devil. The cross is his glorification, lifted up for the world to see and to look to and to trust. He's going to give a couple of questions here. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. So who can fight or argue against Jesus? Stand with him here have it out now. Such is his confidence that no one can, and it is our confidence as well. This is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And this is most certainly true. What can man do to me? Even if they execute me after torturing me in the most vile ways they can imagine. God has me. I'm in the palm of his hand. He will raise me from the dead on the last day and welcome me into his kingdom. Man can't do anything to us. We are already victorious in Christ. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus has defeated all of those things, so he welcomes them to come and fight. Revelation 16, 19, and 20, the threefold picture of the end of the world in the battle between God and the devil where it's simply done. God wins. There's no fight. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me, said for the second time now in the text, back in verse 7 as well. Who will declare me guilty? No one. Not even the devil. I mean, yes, the, the chief priests and so forth seek to, but even Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, looks at Jesus and acknowledges that he found no fault in the man. But the crowds chant for his execution anyway. But behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. On the last day, no accuser against Jesus will survive, be able to stand to contend with him. The moth will eat them up, and that is a reminder, perhaps, of, again, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal. So the picture here, again, earthly things. Enemies are an earthly thing. They will not endure. Their attack against Jesus, their attack against his bride, the church, will not endure. 
we will be delivered from this. Who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? The servant would be Jesus. So who fears Yahweh and, and trusts in Jesus? Fear and trust, by the way, very much so go hand in hand. They're not identical, but when you fear, it is because you trust that whatever it is you fear has power over you. The power to harm you, the power to change your life, whatever it may be. And so we, we do, we fear Yahweh because he is God, he is all-powerful, and we are sinners. We are but beggars. And so we, we do, we beg, we plead for forgiveness, and therefore um, we obey, we hear the voice of Jesus and the forgiveness that he gives. We are set free, we are released from slavery to sin, and we become slaves of Christ. That's a little Romans language there. So let him who walks in darkness has no light. Trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. It's a dark era. I mean, Isaiah is writing at the time where Israel is going to fall to Assyria. Things don't look good. The people are pagans. But him who lives in the midst of darkness set his eyes on Christ. Trust in him. That can be said also then of us. Our culture around us is growing darker and darker. Second Timothy chapter 3 promises that will happen, by the way. And yet, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. From Psalm 23. Our God is good. He is merciful, he is gracious, he provides. And Jesus Christ is king, and he has rescued us from sin, death, and the devil. Thanks be to God. Now we come to our epistle text, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. This will be two different paragraphs, so here's going to be, we'll start with 11 through 14. But before we do, just an acknowledgement that this one also does show up elsewhere in the lectionary, proper 26 in year B which admittedly never gets read because it's either covered up by Reformation Sunday or by All Saints Day, would be chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, with the option of adding on verses 15 to 22. But Maundy Thursday in year A, Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 22, is the epistle reading for that one. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. A priest is a mediator between God and man. The Old Testament priest would take the offerings of the people and bring them to God. He would take the things of God in the Lord's house, care for them, provide what he could to the people, such as the conversation about forgiveness, 
in some cases, teaching of the scriptures. Well, Jesus is that priest between God and man who gives to us the good things that have come, which we would speak of as forgiveness, life, and salvation. He gives those to us. We come to him with our sin, our rebellion against God, and he forgives it all and promises us instead that we have life in his name. So when he appeared as high priest through the greater and more perfect tent, okay, so tent, tabernacle, Old Testament tabernacle, God gives the blueprint for it to Moses at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. Moses will give that to Oholiab and Bezalel, who will be master craftsmen who build it according to dimension. The tabernacle is the holy house of God divided into two rooms. You have an outer courtyard that you have to first enter. Then you enter the first room called the holy place. And let's see if I can recall these details correctly. If you turn to your right, once you're in the tent, you would see the table of the bread of the presence where they would put bread and also wine, a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. If you turn to your left, you would see the golden lampstand, a bit of a foreshadowing that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Its purpose was to give light to the priests who worked in the tent. They would trim the candles morning and evening each day. And then the altar of incense would be directly ahead. Incense for offering up prayers to the Lord. But then there was a second room This was called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. And it was separated, the two rooms, by a curtain. And only the high priest, and only he once a year, would pass through that curtain and enter the Holy of Holies. The only thing in the room was the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God. God's throne in the midst of his people. And he would enter that room on the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur amongst the Jews today, as its Hebrew name. And he would offer sacrifices. He would bring in the blood of the sacrifices, first for himself and also for the people. And he would sprinkle those on that ark. So the Old Testament high priest for the forgiveness of the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement went into that tent. Jesus Christ as our high priest of the good things that come. Well, since he is the greater high priest, he has entered a greater tent. Not one made with hands. That is, not of this creation. So it's not been built by man because it is God. This is John 1.14, as Jesus is described as dwelling with man. The dwelling word in Greek is actually tabernacled, which is a really fun verb. Jesus tabernacles with us, dwells with us. And then we also can think of Jesus talking about how if they destroy this temple, he will rebuild it in three days which gets very much misunderstood by everybody. He was talking about his own body. So Christ himself could be seen as the temple, the perfect tent, 
contextually here, the very throne room of God, you could make a case for it. He enters this place. He comes before the throne of God, not with the blood of goats and calves, like the high priest would have in the Old Testament, but with his own blood. So as the high priest sprinkled the blood on the ark on the throne of God, Jesus offers up his blood before the Father as the atonement for us that takes away all of our sins. He secures an eternal redemption. To redeem is to buy back. He has bought us back from sin and death. Verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls sprinkling defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So if they can do this, if they can mark someone as set apart, if they can make someone, at least in a sense, holy, no longer unclean, if, if an animal's blood can do something, how much more can the blood of Jesus do? who is not an animal, but God. The book of Hebrews has a lot of comparison going on in it. That Jesus is the better whatever. He is, he's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He the, brings the better covenant. He's the better high priest. His is the better blood. I mean, it just shows how Jesus is supreme to everything. And so the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, guided by the Holy Spirit, first into the wilderness after his baptism, but also throughout his ministry into the cross and then to the tomb and then his resurrection. And God, God is God. He's a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. God is not alone because of that. And Jesus had the Spirit with him. And by the Spirit's guidance, sacrificed himself, laid down his life for his friends. Without blemish, perfect. In order to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God purify our conscience from dead works. This would be the reference to the idea of man trying to save himself. Primarily for the Jewish people by seeking to keep the law perfectly as though the law could somehow save us. But this is manifested in many and various ways throughout history as people concoct their own religions which are always about how man can save himself. And try as we might, we're not going to succeed. Their dead works because they're done by dead men. And you look at Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses. I love to use that imagery when I teach um, congregation, confirmation, whatever it may be. Can a dead man save himself? Can a dead man help himself? Can a dead man do anything? And the answer to all those questions is no. We were dead. So go ahead, dead man. Go ahead, do your dead works and see where it gets you. 
but Christ has brought us back. He has raised us from our death to sin, and we are called to serve the living God. So love God, love your neighbor. Our second paragraph is just verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For this, we need a picture and an idea of what a covenant is. Covenants aren't just deals or promises. Covenants are pacts that have been made in blood. Two people make a covenant together, or two parties, and they do so with animal sacrifice. Blood is shed. You see this in Genesis 15, as God and Abraham are making the covenant together, and they sacrifice some animals, and the halves are separated so that they're opposite from each other with a pile of blood in the middle, two lines of the halves, and to make the covenant then, to actually bond it, to do so would be to walk through that blood together, both parties with. Genesis 15, interestingly enough, Abraham is put to sleep and not allowed to pass through. God alone passes through that blood and seals that covenant. And so the penalty for breaking a covenant is death. Right? I mean, if if the, the starting place the starting price of a covenant is the shedding of blood. To betray the covenant requires the shedding of blood, the blood of the one who betrayed it. Now, that first covenant God made with man, whether you want to look at it as Genesis 15 with Abraham, or if you want to skip ahead to Sinai and look at it through the lens of Moses and the law, that first covenant that is that we would be God's people, he would be our God, we were to follow in his ways, do all that he commanded us to do, the Ten Commandments, for example. And we failed. We broke the covenant. And because we broke it, we deserved to die. The beauty of why I like to go back to Genesis 15, though, is, again, the reminder, Abraham didn't walk through. Abraham's blood is not capable of paying the price of the covenant to make things right again. Only the blood of God could do that. He's the only one whose blood is involved in the cutting of the covenant, so it's only his blood that can reverse it when it has been damaged. So this then brings us to this verse 15, that he is, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. That would be the covenant Jesus makes with his disciples on Maundy Thursday. We refer to it as the Lord's Supper. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying to them, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, then, also after the supper, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Jesus, his death, the shedding of the blood of God, 
is the shedding of blood to close out that old covenant that we had broken. Also, because a covenant needs the shedding of blood to start it, his blood shed on the cross is the start of the new covenant. And the new covenant's terms, they're not the same. It's no longer obey me, do this, and live. It's now take, eat, and drink of it all of you for the forgiveness of sin. The new covenant does not demand of the Christian. It is a thing of grace. And yes, it does have commands in it. Take, drink. But really, how much work was that? How much work is that? Jesus is sitting at the table, reclining at the table, so leaning on a side. His disciples around him, he hands them a loaf of bread and says, take a bite. Hands them a chalice and says, take a drink. They're not really working, are they? Even the Pharisees would not have considered that work. So let's be careful ourselves about this. The Pharisees had a, even a law about how many times your hand could go from your plate to your mouth on the Sabbath day before it was considered work and thus breaking the Sabbath. And this would not have qualified. Jesus gives the new covenant. And interestingly enough, you can even push this a little further, this picture, because Jesus then, having been flogged, scourged, will be dripping blood as he is forced to carry his cross up the hill to Golgotha, which means Jesus is walking through the blood. He's sealing the covenant. And you can even argue, perhaps, that Simon of Cyrene, who the soldiers forced to take up the cross with Jesus and help him carry it, that this covenant's been made with God and man walking through it. Now, of course, we could make that case just from Jesus alone being both God and man. But beautiful pictures, these covenants and what they mean for us. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a covenant that gives us forgiveness again and again and again so that we may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There is a promised land for you that yet awaits. And Jesus Christ, John 14, said that if he's going to prepare a place for you, he will also come back and take you to be with him where he is. And that place, that inheritance, where we get to reign with Jesus forever, it's everlasting. It knows no end. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So again, by breaking the covenant, death is deserved. That death has been paid. Christ offered it to buy us back. Now I'm coming back and I'm, I'm re-editing this Year A Passion Sunday reading, which the pastor has the option of Matthew 26 and 27 in their entirety, or shortened to Matthew 27 verses 11 to 66, or John chapter 12, verses 20 to 43. The John 12 reading can be found now on the website for this podcast. It, it's been recorded on March 22, 2023. Or if you're on the, the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary, the actual episode guide page, 
there's a link to it right after the episode link for Passion Sunday in year A, B, and C because it's in any of those three years. But Matthew, Matthew 26, verses 1 through 27, verse 10, they didn't originally make this episode. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to plow through them. And this is a lot of text. There's not a good and easy way. This would be a couple hours worth of Bible study. So I'm going to give you minor uh, key thoughts along the path here of what happens to Jesus on Wednesday and Thursday leading up to, again, what we've already covered of the Passion account of Jesus in Matthew 27. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So the Jews, their leaders, want to get rid of Jesus Christ. Again, they are gathered together for this festival, for Holy Week. It's leading up to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 15th to the 21st of the month. Lots of people there. Uh, The packed city of Jerusalem has Jewish leadership on its edge, as are the Roman soldiers. Riots are likely when you get so many people together. And then that would mean the Romans use the sword to strike the riot down and restore peace and order, which is very bad for the Jewish people if that happens. So they want to get rid of Jesus, but they don't want to do it publicly because then, well, uh, a riot would break out. They want to get Jesus by stealth to kill him. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Bethany, one mile east of Jerusalem, Simon the leper, and a woman unnamed. Luke chapter 7 also has this account in it. So does Mark chapter 14 and John chapter 12. It's possible we have a few different accounts going on. Simon the leper is mentioned by Matthew and Mark. Simon the Pharisee is mentioned by Luke. Could be the same guy. Could be a Pharisee who once had leprosy. Jesus healed him. And so now he's welcoming Jesus into his own home. The woman is only ever named in John's text, where we find out it's Mary, the sister of of Lazarus and Martha from Bethany. This isn't their home, Simon's home. And the oil, the ointment, is poured on his head in Matthew and Mark, but on his feet in Luke and John. 
Now that's pretty simple, uh, to just simply say that it was poured on both, and that different moments were being reflected by the disciples as they, they share that with us. It's possible that all four of those accounts are the same account. It's also possible, though, uh, Luke is the most different, so his seems chronologically to be earlier in Jesus' ministry, so that is a possibility. Or it could just be a recap given later. The point here, though, that I want to focus on is the idea that Jesus Christ is the anointed one. She anoints him. We don't really see Jesus get anointed otherwise. Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, and Christ, Christos in Greek, they mean anointed one. That's the the definition of those words. And Jesus is anointed for us. He's our prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three classes that received anointing, that is a, a setting aside by God with the pouring of oil in the Old Testament, marking them for one of those functions. And Jesus is all three of those for us. God has set him apart for this purpose. The anointing, though, it's really only seen in this. I mean, he's baptized, but that's water. This is where some kind of an oil is poured over him. Anyway, verse 13, very true. Everybody in Christendom, having heard the gospel, has heard of this woman and what she did in love for Christ. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas, for thirty silver, betrays Jesus to death. He doesn't realize it's for death. He'll repent, or at least try to repent, when he comes to that recognition later on. Verse 17, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So we come to Thursday of Holy Week, Maundy Thursday, and we come to the evening as they have their meal together. We call it the Last Supper, at which the Lord gives us the Lord's Supper that's coming up just ahead. And we have it revealed that Judas is the betrayer, although seemingly somehow not recognized by the other disciples. Maybe Jesus actually specifically hides it from them so that they cannot react and they cannot prevent Judas from doing it. Or... Maybe he simply speaks quietly and the other disciples truly didn't hear it um, simply because it wasn't said to them. Verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, 
eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper. The the cherished and beloved sacrament of the church that Jesus Christ has given to us. That he takes his body and his blood and he gives them to us. Often, regularly, whenever we want it. This is the only account that mentions forgiveness. You'll find these words in Mark, you'll find them in Luke, you'll find them in 1 Corinthians 11, but it's only here in Matthew 26, verse 28, that the forgiveness of sins is tied to the Lord's Supper. But it's here. It's Scripture. This is why we believe it. This is why we teach it. That this meal is not an ordinary meal. That we are not just taking of bread and wine that are supposed to remind us of what Jesus did. We are actually receiving the very body and blood of Jesus. As he said, this is my body. This is my blood. The Apostle Paul agrees in 1 Corinthians 10:16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is truly the body and blood of Jesus. Luther said, In, with, and under the bread and wine, because we have no idea how it works. Let's just throw a whole bunch of prepositions out there. We don't know. Jesus said it, we take him at his word. I don't understand how the bread is also the body of Jesus. There are some who say it becomes, that it's no longer bread. That's more than Jesus said. And then there are those who say it doesn't become his body at all. That's definitely not what Jesus said. So we try to take him at his word and let the mystery remain a mystery. We don't have to understand it in order for it to be true. I don't understand God, and yet I know he's true, right? So let God's mystery be a mystery, but trust in what he has said, that this is for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 30, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. They sang a hymn. Family devotion style. Right right after dinner, they sang together, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives, where the betrayal would occur. And even though Jesus warns them that it's coming, they don't believe him. The irony of Peter denying Jesus to say that he won't deny him, right? Jesus says, you'll deny me. Peter responds, I'll never deny you. That's a denial right there. He's rejecting, he's resisting what the Lord has said to be true. He's going to grieve that very much so later. Then Jesus went, verse 36, with them to a place called Gethsemane, which means olive press, oil press. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Gethsemane, the oil press. It's not the olive harvest season. That press is going to be busy. As it's on the Mount of Olives, they'd harvest all the trees, they'd bring it all to the press, working, working, working to make oil and then bring it to market. But when it's not that harvest, the press is empty, and it's a place where Jesus and the disciples seem to frequent and spend some time to get rest. Judas knows where to betray him, where the, the chief priest can find him away from the crowds, at the press, at Gethsemane. So Jesus prays there three times, same prayer, it seems, that the Lord would, the Father would sustain him, basically, give him strength to face what comes next. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So Judas betrays Jesus. Crowds of soldiers, really the, the chief priest's own temple guard, that have come out to arrest him with weapons as though he were a criminal. He's been in their house, he's been in their temple all this time, and they've done nothing. But now they come at him in such a strange way, an undeserved way. But as Peter as we know from the other Gospels, draws his sword seeking to protect Jesus because he still doesn't get it. Matthew 16, Get behind me, Satan, for you have not in mind the things of God but the things of man. He's fighting to protect Jesus 
And Jesus says he could have had 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers. Can you imagine 72,000 angels coming down and fighting for Jesus? Rome wouldn't stand a chance. And Jesus is stronger than all of them. But this is why he came. I won't get into self-defense conversation with this one. Um, I will let Jesus' words in verse 52 stand for themselves. He who takes the sword perishes by the sword. The government is given the sword by God, so there is a role for it. But by and large, as Christians, we suffer alongside Jesus. Verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? A secret trial in the middle of the night. The Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, consisting of 70 men and led by the high priest, supposed to be faithful, supposed to follow the Lord, and instead they're seeking to put God to death. And as they do, oh, how they break the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21, that section. I'm going to skip a little bit here, but verse 16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. The rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be a life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And here... The chief priest has specifically sought false witnesses for the purpose of putting Jesus to death. Each of these men who came forward in verse 59 and verse 60 that they found none, each of these should have been executed by the Jewish council for the crime of seeking to put a man falsely to death. That's the penalty Deuteronomy 19 specifies. And yet, instead, it's the very leaders of the people who should be the closest to the Lord in terms of knowing his word and and a love for him and a leadership of his people. They're the very ones seeking it. And Christ will die the death 
that they deserve, the death that we deserve. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So just as Jesus predicted, told Peter back earlier in the chapter, in verse 30 and following, that he would deny him three times, so Peter does. And he weeps. But he's not alone. All the other disciples have done it too. They've all disappeared. They've run. They've hid. But here we are. Christ is alone to suffer and die for the people. Chapter 27, verse 1, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Pretty simple, straightforward. They shouldn't have been meeting in the night anyway, but now that morning comes, or probably around 6 a.m., they deliver him to Pilate the Roman official who has the authority to put him to death, and that's what we'll see into chapter 27 next. But first, the last part of this added section to the gospel reading, verses 3 to 10. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set, by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So we wrap up this section with a quote from Jeremiah chapter 32. But other than that, just a note on Judas. Again, he betrayed Jesus, and yet when he sees that they want to put Jesus to death, he repents. I know it says changes his mind here. It's the Greek word for repent too, though. So I'm not sure... I think the English translators are kind of fudging the text here just a little bit so that we were not led to believe this was a legitimate repentance. Maybe they're trying to seek seek to change our, our way of understanding repentance on this. I'm not really sure. But the word repent means to turn. That's all it means. So you turn from one thing to another. So you repent of your sin. So Judas betrayed Jesus. He could repent of that by turning away from the Pharisees. That doesn't necessarily mean he turns towards God, right? In fact, that's kind of what we see happen. I am facing the west wall of my office. I could repent. I could turn from the west wall and face the north wall. Or I could turn the other way and face the south wall. 
or I could do a 180 and face the east wall. I have options when it comes to repentance. Judas is grieved by his sin, and he goes to the only person, unfortunately, that he thinks he can go to with that sin. He goes to the high priest, the one who was in charge of the Old Testament forgiveness of sins, of the Day of Atonement reconciliation with God. But that's the great tragedy of this text. They don't have any forgiveness to give because they've rejected Christ, the author of forgiveness, the author of life. And so as he presents his sin to them in a confession, they respond in some of the most evil words ever uttered in creation. What is that to us? See to it yourself. The sinner was left with his sin and told to figure it out. And as Paul talks about sin in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses. All Judas had to do was die. And so that's what he did. We grieve. I mean, imagine going to your pastor today and confessing your sin and hearing, what is that to me? See to it yourself. But you're the, ones, you're the one God gave to me to forgive me, to speak of forgiveness in my life. What do you mean, what is that to me? Thanks be to God for faithful pastors. And may he provide more. For the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. As we turn to our gospel text for the day, it is from Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 66. We're jumping right into the middle of Jesus being on trial. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Pontius Pilate is a Roman authority. He has been appointed by the Roman Empire to govern, to rule, to care for this part of their territory. It has been suggested many times that this isn't exactly a favorable part of their, their empire. Backwater is used to describe it an occasion throughout history books and and different New Testament theological textbooks. As you think of where Rome is at the northwestern part of the Mediterranean Sea, there's quite a distance before you get to the area of, of Jerusalem down on the southeastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, as Jesus is interacting with these different groups on the tr in the trial, he doesn't make a single attempt to defend himself. And there's a reason for that. He knows that he has to die. This must happen. Could he defend himself? Sure. Is he innocent? Yeah. But he knows that he has to go to the cross for the sake of creation, for the sake of the people whom he so dearly loves. And so he remains silent. We'll start with the next section. 
Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now when the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus, the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. He said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. We start here with really their annual Passover celebration. As I mentioned in the Old Testament text, this is a major deal for their their time uh, together. It's the central Uh, basically holiday, holy day in their calendar. And the governor, as a means to appease the Jews and and try to keep them as a a rulable group of people, uh, would give them a prisoner. He would pardon someone for them every year. And he gives them two options. You can sense here, Pilate thinks this should be an obvious choice for the crowd. Here's Jesus You guys are just envious here. And here's Barabbas. We have him in jail for murder. Who do you want? Imagine Pilate's surprise when the crowd asks for Barabbas instead of for Jesus. And Pilate gets this. He doesn't get it fully, as you see with this question at the end of this paragraph. I mean, why? What evil has he done? He gets it somewhat, though. He understands that there's something political, something religious going on with this group, and he's being cautious. His wife gets it even more. Now, just how much she learns in her dream that she mentions, we don't really know. But it has been held historically, the church has believed that the wife of Pilate became a Christian that she ends up believing in Jesus. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church recognizes both Pilate and his bride as saints. There aren't many that recognize Pilate that way himself, but the wife is fairly frequently believed to have been a Christian by many. We see in verse 20 that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd. So the crowd who ends up chanting for his crucifixion, they're being encouraged here. They're being egged on by the ones who should be their religious leaders. And instead, they're asking for the release of a murderer and the death of God. Now imagine that for just a moment. I mean, we really can only imagine how devilish this scene must have been. How wretched would this have appeared to Pilate even as a non-Christian, but let alone to us as Christians, as this crowd is chanting and demanding the death of God. This isn't your normal celebration. This isn't your normal chanting. This is 
This is the fullness of fallen man's sinful and wicked rebellious state. Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate responds to the crowd with cowardice. He knows Jesus is not deserving of the death penalty, but he is willing to allow them to crucify Jesus. He's willing to allow Jesus, an innocent man, to die in order to save his own job. That's about where he's at. Church tradition holds that Pilate was already on shaking, shaky ground with the Roman authorities that were above him. Uh, so for a riot to break out in his territory would not have looked good and may have cost him his, his role as a, a governor. So he washes his hands and claims himself innocent. Basically, whatever you guys decide you're doing, it's on you. You, you take care of this. The guilt is yours. And the crowd, the Jewish people, respond, His blood be on us and on our children. It is one of the most ironic statements in all of Scripture. In the Old Testament, well, before we get into that meaning, they simply mean by their statement that they're taking the guilt of this action upon themselves. Okay, governor, whatever you say, sure, blame us. That's fine. But it's much deeper than that. In the Old Testament, the blood of the atonement, the sacrifice, would be sprinkled on the people so that they would have their sin forgiven. In our New Testament, we now know that it is Jesus' blood that atones for not just one or some of our sin, but indeed all of our sin, forgiving all of us. They don't realize the depth of their words. Jesus' blood literally is on them and on their children. It covers even their sins, even this sin of chanting for the death of God, forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Now, as we get to the punishment in verse 26, as, as Pilate orders Jesus to be basically tortured here, some kind of a whipping we have Deuteronomy 25, and the Jewish law describes uh, lashes that could be given to a person, no more than 40. This isn't Jewish law, though, that's occurring. This is Roman. And the Romans were a lot more brutal. The Jewish punishment was a punishment. It was meant to be done so that the person would be harmed, and just like, I guess you would say, the older generation spanked a child as a form of discipline so the child would avoid doing the same thing again, that's what the Jewish law was meant for, to curb sin. This one is much more intense. The Romans were well known for using something called a cat of nine tails, which essentially is, is a, a leather whip, but the, the ends of the whip have been split, and so you've got several different ends. And at the tip of each of those is some kind of a a broken piece of 
pottery or or something striking someone with one of these is going to cause a lot more damage to the body as it cuts and as it tears jesus endured this significantly the passion of the christ film portrays this powerfully for christians to see that film's i don't know a good 20 years old at this point already now We move into the next section. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So even though Pilate said he was innocent of this man's blood, it is the Roman soldiers here who are carrying out the task. They take him into the headquarters uh, where the governor works. They bring in probably about 600 Roman soldiers. A battalion is maybe a tenth of a legion. They take his clothes off of him, so the humiliation of nakedness. They then put a a mockery of clothing upon him. They play dress-up with with Jesus. They put him into the attire of kingliness, although, again, it's still a mocking thing. They put on him a scarlet robe here. Mark 15 and John 19 both record a purple robe, and I believe Luke calls it a beautiful garment. So we get a little bit of varying descriptions on what this looked like. But they also put the crown of thorns on his head, again, thinking that the thorns are going to be stabbing into his his skin and causing him to bleed. We've got the rod in his hand as the, the king might hold a staff. And then they bow before him and they mockingly say and call him king. And after they've done that, they get back up. They disgrace him by spitting upon him, as we saw in the Isaiah text. They take the reed, uh, that rod that had given to him, and they use it to beat him, striking his head, again, thinking that the crown of thorns is upon his head. That makes it all the more painful. And then they strip that, that fancy garment that they had put on him, and they put him back in his own clothing. We then come to the crucifixion. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. We start by meeting this man named Simon, not the same as Simon Peter or Cephas, uh, but this is Simon of Cyrene. We don't have as much about Simon. Uh, We simply learn, really, it sounds like a man who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Romans had it within their law that they could conscript, they could compel a person to do their work whenever they wanted. Uh, And so here we have really a reminder of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 41, that if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The Romans have forced Simon to help carry this cross, and he does. Jesus is already severely beaten, and so his body, weak from that torture, so a helping hand would have certainly been of benefit to Jesus and aiding him up to the, the place of the skull, as we hear in the next verse. Now, why it's called the place of the skull I believe is lost to history. There's possibilities here. It could simply be the the pattern of death that is seen on Golgotha uh, is what gets it its name. It could be that they actually use it as a place of intimidation. Um, so as medieval societies would have, after killing, uh, beheading someone, they would put a head on a pike. Maybe the, the Romans were leaving skulls around this location to terrify and also to encourage people to follow the law and avoid this punishment. Or third possibility is that the place simply had a physical resemblance to a large skull, um, that it actually was kind of shaped like one, and so it had come to be called that. We really just don't know, but those are a few possibilities of what it could have been like. Now, they offer him a drink of wine, and he, re- he resists it. He refuses it. And this connects back to the account of the Lord's Supper. As he has finished the celebration of the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he tells them in Matthew 26, 29, that he will not drink of it again until they drink it together in the kingdom of heaven. Then they actually crucify him. That gets a very short little bit, just a couple of words, the actual act of putting him on a cross. And then they divide his garments. That connects very well to Psalm 22, verse 18. Really, so many things throughout this whole section have been connecting to Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. If you have a study Bible, um, the cross-reference Bible verses that they usually put in the margins are fantastic in this section to, to be able to see all the different prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament and the things that he would do. Um, if you're not familiar with some of the most profound ones, Psalm 22 is a a great place to go. Um, Jesus himself is pointing us there later in the text. Isaiah 52 and 53 is another of those servant songs, another wonderful place to go um, for for some of these kinds of ideas. There are others. Um, Prophecy fills that Old Testament, all of it trying to point us to Jesus. And so I encourage you to, to take that opportunity to go to look at those things, to to read those things uh, together. Now, let's see, we have the soldiers staying and keeping watch over him so the disciples can't come and take him. We have uh, their mock sign, just like they mocked him in person. Now they make a sign to mock him. But their sign is both actually a mockery and a true statement. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They were using it to to make fun of him, but it's actually true. 
He is the king of the Jews. He's actually the king of all people, including those soldiers. We mentioned the two robbers uh, here in verse 38 and in verse 44. Jesus is crucified in the middle of the two. Verse 44 is a little, um, sounds like it's a little in conflict with what we hear from Luke, which is the account where the one uh, thief defends Jesus in front of the other um, and ends up having Jesus say to him today, you will be with me in paradise. So to keep these in unison together, it is possible that as this process started, as they were first on the cross early in the day, that the soldier, the thieves were both mocking Jesus. And as time progressed, as they had the opportunity for a conversation that we are simply not privy to, that the Lord um, shared the good news uh, with this thief. And the thief had a change of heart. The thief repented in the midst of all of this. And we see that repentance in Luke's account. So it's a possibility. Now, the passersby, as we talked about when we looked at this from the Philippians angle, uh, this, this whole thing with Golgotha is meant to be a total embarrassment to both the people on the cross and to their families. We see that here in verse 39 as they, they're wagging their heads, they're shouting things um, about him, and just the point of why they would crucify someone in the first place. Now, what they shout that you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He will. They just don't recognize what he's saying. He will rebuild it. But the other half, where they demand him to save himself, if this is all really true, he can't. I don't want to say that in the sake of, uh, to say that he isn't possible, that he can't actually do it, that it's impossible for him to. Instead, he knows his purpose. As we read from Isaiah, that he, he has not turned backward. He has not rebelled. To save himself would be to rebel against God. It would be to turn backward from the reason that he has come. And he knows this. He cannot save himself. Because in doing so, he would be forfeiting everything he had come into creation to do. He must remain on the cross. And that mockery continues as the, the others join in. Uh, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Another demand of a sign. This isn't new to Matthew's gospel account. Matthew 12, verses 38 and 39, they demanded a sign and Jesus said, you will only get one, the sign of Jonah. The idea that Jesus would be like Jonah was three days in the belly of the, the fish. So Jesus would be three days in the belly of the earth and then he would rise again. Brings us to... 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So we get a little bit of the timing of Good Friday here. Uh, sixth hour of the Roman day was, was noon to us. Uh, the day starts when the sun comes up, roughly six in the morning. So the sixth hour is about noon. The ninth hour is about three. We're told that darkness covered the land. 
So the time where the land is supposed to be at the peak of its brightness because the sun is at its highest point in the sky, we have darkness. I would encourage you to not think of this as a you know stormy, cloudy day kind of darkness, but instead the darkness described back in the plagues in the early part of the book of Exodus as God brought a darkness upon the earth that was so thick that people could actually feel it. Um, that's the kind of darkness I would encourage you to think of here. This is the darkness, the fullness of our sin, as the, the Son of God himself, God in the flesh, is now hanging on the cross because of every sin every one of us has ever committed. Those who have lived before Jesus and those who are living now, even today, all these years later, every sin, however many, uh, well, I, I don't even know of a number big enough to cover that, um, math is infinite, infinite, so we could just come up with a random word. It would eventually be a number in theory. So uh, you make up a word. That's how many sins have happened in the history of mankind. That's how many sins Jesus forgave on the cross. There is darkness. Our sin is darkness. And so the land is covered from noon until three. And then at that time, about the third, the ninth hour, Jesus cries out. And he cries out. The words that begin Psalm 22. For churches that use hymnals today, our, our hymns tend to be titled after the very first line of a hymn. So whatever the first words are that you would sing, those are also the title. The Jewish people knew their psalms in a similar way. The Old Testament hymnal was the book of Psalms. They had 150 hymns together that they would they could sing. And this, this is Jesus hanging on the cross in a twofold way. First, Yes, he is, he is being forsaken in this moment as the fullness of sin falls upon him and he faces and endures death for us. So there's a realness to that question. But there is also the connection. As Jesus says these words, he is pointing all of the people who are around him as he's hanging on the cross. So the Jews, the Pharisees, the, the soldiers, the, the crowd, whoever it is that's there, He's pointing them to the Old Testament, Psalm 22, which is all about his crucifixion. It's a wonderful opportunity to bear witness. Now, the Roman soldiers wouldn't have picked this up, but the Jewish leaders, especially, and most of the Jewish people, had most of the Old Testament memorized, especially their Psalms. And so they would have picked up on this immediately, and their brains, their minds would have been pointed to start thinking of these things. So very powerful a uh, powerful illustration of Jesus continuing to fulfill what he said back in his, his conversation with the devil in Matthew 4, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus on the cross is using the Old Testament hymnal of the people to call them to repentance of the crime that they have just committed against the Son of God himself. There's some profoundity to that. Now, they rightly connect this in interest to the name Elijah. Um, he just said, Eli, Eli. El is the Hebrew word for God. Uh, to put the I on it uh, after El is the possessive, so my God. And then the Ya ending is the first syllable of God's Old Testament name that he gives to us, which is Yahweh. Uh, literally would mean he is, when we say Yahweh, we're confessing our faith in God, that he exists and he is our Lord. And so the name Elijah means Yahweh is my God. The Eli that Jesus just said is my God, my God, as you see in our English translation. 
Um, so there's an interesting connection there that the, the people that are hearing it are making. Is he saying my God or is he actually saying the name Elijah, the chief prophet? Now, I don't know of any Christian that thinks he was saying Elijah. We all we all tend to believe the connection to Psalm 22 and that Jesus is feeling uh, the abandonment here um, as he dies on the cross. But the connection is, is neat to see, uh, nonetheless, between the names. Names are just fun. Um, the Old Testament people of God had fun with names. Uh, if you get a chance, study names in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a good thing. Now, as this continues, we see the conflict of, of the crowd. Their responses are conflicted. They don't know what to do with this situation. Some are trying to provide for him as, as he's dying. Others are, are saying, well, let's see if this really does happen. Wait a second. Let's see if Elijah does come to save him. And can you imagine the sight? the chief prophet of God who has been known to have been taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, returning to earth to save this man from off of the cross, I, that would have been quite a sight to behold. So you can see um, some of them may have really, truly, genuinely been curious to have seen God perform a miracle in their midst. But we know, and verse 50 shares with us that this is it. Jesus yields his spirit. In other words, he dies. And that has ramifications. It has immediate impact, and we'll read those. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. In the moment of Jesus' death, several things happen. The curtain temple is torn in two. The earth shakes in an earthquake. The rocks are split. The tombs burst open. That's quite a bit happening. And we actually, the intent of verse 45 would even share with us that this darkness begins to lift from creation as well. The curtain temple, verse 51, is one of the most important ideas in all of Scripture. And we tend to miss it and not understand what's going on here. This is the picture of God himself. The temple curtain in the Old Testament divided the two rooms of the temple. The temple is God's house in the midst of his people. The tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle was first the temporary place that moved around as they wandered the wilderness. And eventually Solomon builds a permanent structure, the actual temple. That has to be rebuilt a couple of times. Uh, that's a little beyond our conversation here. The temple itself, or the tabernacle, was divided into two separate rooms. You had the holy place where the priests could all come in and they could perform different uh, sacrifices. They had the table of the presence, which foreshadowed the Lord's Supper. And they also had the, the lampstand that gave the light. They had the, the table for incense offerings. And then there was this giant curtain. Uh, history holds that it may have been as much as four inches thick, this large, thick curtain that separated the holy place from the smaller room, the most holy place, the holy of holies, as you sometimes will hear it called. In this place, you had really just one thing, the Ark of the Covenant, which in its description in Exodus, 
is quite clearly more than just a box. It's actually designed to be a throne. The point of the tabernacle is to let God's people know that he dwells in their midst. And as you look at the tabernacle's layout in Exodus, you will see that the camps actually, the tribes camp around it. There are three tribes on each side, north, west, east, and south of this tabernacle. So if you had an aerial view, God's throne is right smack dab in the midst of his people. But the curtain divides God's presence because of our sin, our imperfection, our unholiness. We cannot see God and live. You see this with the Old Testament saints. Even Isaiah, back when he was called in Isaiah 6, he sees God and he thinks he's going to die. Woe is me! His life is over because he just saw God. That's the, that's the rule. We cannot exist as sinners in the presence of God. It's not possible we will die. God can make exceptions. He is God. He can make exceptions to this as he did for Isaiah that day, as he does for Moses elsewhere. We see this a few times, just a few. So the rule was death. The exception was forgiveness in life. In the Old, old Testament, the old way. God's perfection consumed sinners. But now... After the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the temple curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom. There is no more barrier between God and men. That could be terrifying, except that's why Jesus came. We are fully forgiven. All sins are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are made clean in the eyes of God. We can come into the presence of our Heavenly Father and not fear death. Because the Lord has given us life. This is, as I said, one of the most profound pictures in all of Scripture. The importance of the temple curtain. We can't miss this one. Now, there's more here. The earthquakes are tremendous. The fact that the tombs are bursted open could be from the earthquakes. It could be a separate miracle. Hard to say. What we do see, though, is there's kind of a delayed answer here. Verse 52 opens the tombs. 53 shares that the people after the resurrection of Jesus end up going into the city. So after Jesus raises from the dead on Sunday morning... The people who had died before, whose tombs were busted open, they were raised to life, and they went back into Jerusalem and started seeing people. You can imagine the chaos that that may have caused, um, the, just the, the overwhelming response that the city, the civilians might have had. Now, the centurion, the one who was in charge, who was at the base of the cross here, having seen the earthquake, having seen the darkness, having... Seeing so many things happening, he doesn't see the temple curtain. Um, the resurrections haven't happened at this point, but he, he has been witness to so much. He cries out in faith, as to those who were helping. Truly, this was the Son of God. This is a, faith of, a faithful response. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So we have 
not just the disciples who are who knows where at this point, but we have some of the, the ladies. Many of them could be called disciples of Jesus, certainly as well. A disciple is one who follows Jesus, learns from Jesus. So we have these followers of Christ, and they are continuing to follow him. They followed him to the point of death on the cross. Mary is a common New Testament name. There could be as many as seven Marys in the New Testament. So we get a couple of them listed here. Part of that is there are two different Greek names that both get translated Mary in English. Um, so that's an issue. Okay. We also then come to verse 57 as Jesus is buried. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So Joseph of Arimathea is listed as one of the Pharisees um, in, in history. We know of him and Nicodemus by name as two Pharisees that had actually believed in Jesus. Quite possible that there were more. So there is some division amongst the Pharisees over, over this Jesus. And we've seen that throughout the gospel at different places as well. So it should be kept in mind, not every Pharisee was the brood of vipers that John called them back early in the gospel account. So we see Joseph go to Pilate petitioning for the body. Uh, this is done so the body is not on the cross for the Sabbath. Uh, that would not be proper in Jewish traditional customs for someone to remain on the cross on the Sabbath day. So they wanted it down before nightfall, 6 p.m.-ish is when the Sabbath would begin and when the sun set. So they get him down in time. Uh, they are able to wrap his body and they lay it in a cloth so that after the Sabbath, they can then go back to the tomb and make proper uh, burial and funeral preparations for Jesus, which we see on Easter morning. They, they don't go to the tomb in faith. They go to the tomb with spices to anoint his body uh, as part of their burial practice. So the tomb is cut by Joseph himself. It's a new tomb, never been used. He rolls the stone himself in front of it to, to seal it um, as is proper and fitting. And we see the ladies again. So we've got Mary Magdalene, who's followed Jesus for a long time. We get the mention of the Mary, who is the mother of James and Joseph. And we also have the mention, not here, but previously at the cross, of the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so James and John. Uh, these three ladies present at the cross, and at least two of the three um, were present as the tomb was sealed. Our last paragraph of the day together. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the gospel of the Lord. So the next day after the preparation refers then to the Sabbath. So on Friday before sunset, you have to get everything prepared for Saturday because you're not allowed to work on Saturday. So you have to make your meals. You have to prepare whatever needs to be prepared 
This is all the more true because this is the weekend of the Passover celebration. It's a seven-day festival. Um, so you have to do the preparations so that you're all ready and set for Saturday and you don't have to work. So this is a reference to Saturday. The chief priests and the Pharisees, interestingly enough, who shouldn't be working on the Sabbath, are going to the governor to petition him um, in terms of guarding the tomb. And they do. They make the petition. They actually remember the words of Jesus. This is Matthew 12, 40 that they're referring to. Better than the disciples do. The disciples didn't make the connection that Jesus was talking about. He was going to come back to life at this point in the gospel yet. And yet the Pharisees got it. And they're concerned by it. They don't want the disciples to to steal the body and make it as though um, Jesus really rose from the dead, and they think that's going to cause a, a chaos for them, not just them, but also Rome. Imagine the implications. Great film if you get a chance this this spring uh, to watch Risen. Uh, really a thoughtful movie, just giving us the opportunity to think about what it would have been like after Jesus rose from the dead, as the soldiers and the Jews would have been looking diligently for the body. It had great impact on both those communities that Jesus rose or that his body wasn't in the tomb. Um, so a neat film. Uh, I recommend it. Well done. So then we conclude um, here with the idea that Pilate sends them off to, to seal the tomb, set the guard themselves. He doesn't want to expend, as he's already said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He doesn't want to use his resources. You guys have your own soldiers. Do it yourself. He wanted to distance himself from this event as best as he could. This is our gospel account. These are the readings for Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, um, which then lead us into the celebration of, of Holy Week together. Um, and our following week's readings get to be our Easter Sunday readings as the church rejoices in the resurrection. The Lord be with you. As a reminder, again, we can have the Matthew reading for the gospel, or your pastor can choose John chapter 12, verses 1 to 23, which is where we'll be turning now together. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the, his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. All right, that's our first paragraph. We've got to move through this text quickly as well as we did with Matthew. Six days before the Passover would be a reference to Saturday, the day before the triumphal entry. Jesus comes to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. It's a city where Lazarus, Mary, Martha live. Lazarus, the same guy Jesus raised from the dead, as John has already recorded in his gospel account, and they're going to have a dinner for him. Now, it's not specified exactly where in Bethany the dinner happens. I mean, if you just read John, you would have thought it was in 
knew Lazarus' house. But this account parallels Matthew 26, verse 6 following, Mark 14, verses 3 and 4, Luke 7. You might make the case that Luke 7 is a different account, but that perhaps Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12 are all the same account that happens right before Holy Week, whereas Luke 7 happens before Jesus goes out and preaches in other towns and villages also. So these accounts then can give each other more information. If this is true, then this is the house of Simon the leper, perhaps even a Pharisee by trade, and that Lazarus and Simon both owe Jesus everything. He's raised Lazarus from the dead, he's healed Simon from his leprosy, so forth. Anyway, they're giving a dinner to celebrate, and what happens? Mary is going to break open a bottle of perfume that's worth, as we learn from Judas, 300 days' pay, a denarius, a denarii for plural, is a day's pay. And she dumps it on him. Again, paralleling these texts that would mean she pours it both upon his head and upon his feet, John just mentions the feet, that she wipes his feet then with her hair, which is showing the humility of this account. It's showing her willingness to serve. The feet were the dirty thing. It was a servant's job to wash a person's feet when they came in the house, and she's doing that not with a bowl of water, but with ointment. And instead of using some kind of cloth or towel to dry his feet off, she's using her own hair. Extreme humility here, and also lifting up Jesus. So as we talk about Jesus as the anointed one, by the way, which is what both the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, and the Greek word Christ, Christos, they both mean the anointed one. This account is an anointing, and certainly has a connection that can be talked about there. We learn in this account that it's Judas who raises the issue about it. The one who is about to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver on Spy Wednesday a couple days down the road. He makes the claim that it would have been better to sell it to the poor. Well, sell it and then give it to the poor. But John notes that that was not a faithful, true concern. John is aware of what's been going on, and John writes this gospel years down the road. I mean, he we're talking about an event that happened in 27, 28, or 29 AD, depending on Jesus being born in 6, 5, or 4 BC, hard to say exactly, roughly a 33-year life and then ministry. John probably doesn't write this gospel until the 90s, 60 years later. He's had an opportunity to learn some more, and the Holy Spirit's also inspiring him to write. So we should take him certainly at the word here that Judas was stealing, pilfering the disciples' money back, Jesus' money back, as Jesus is in charge. Money is his idol. Jesus says, leave her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Other texts that she's preparing Jesus for the day of his burial, which is now just six days away, as we had six days before Passover to start this text. The poor you will always have with you, you do not always have me.
It's a reference we can still see today. There will always be poor people, no matter how well a government tries to structure its society, no matter what programs it puts into place. Some people will always be poor, some by their own choice, by their own fault. Others, simply because this is a broken world filled with suffering. And that's the, the way it has fallen upon them. So, seek to help them is our role as a church today, certainly. But Christ comes first is essentially the point here. He is king. All right, verse 9 and, well, through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So, Jesus begins to draw crowds to himself. Now, from the other accounts of the triumphal entry, there have been crowds already traveling with him on his way to Jerusalem, but he's gathering more now that he's there. And in part, John admits they're there to see Lazarus alive again. That they've heard of this miracle of raising the dead and they want to see it for themselves. And that brings you to verse 10. The chief priest, the one who are to be caring for the people, interceding for the people between God and men, they are plotting to put Lazarus to death. Not just Jesus. I mean, it would be wicked enough if it were one. Lazarus, well, he's not the ringleader. You kill Jesus, in theory, everything should dissipate but they know Lazarus is tied up in this intimately, and so they plan to get rid of him too. Nothing's ever told of us any further, I don't believe, about what happens to Lazarus. He would have died again. Do they kill him? Does he die of old age? Does he... I don't know. But it's their fear. They're, they're recognizing that they are losing their power. They're losing their position, their status, to this Jesus. That's going to happen again later in the text as well, verse 19. All right, verses 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, the large crowd coming for the feast is a reference to the feast of Passover that every Jewish male was supposed to attend in Jerusalem. There were three feasts, the feast of Passover, the feast of Pentecost, and the feast of booths. So this is now Sunday, and the people are going to travel with Jesus into Jerusalem. Verse 13, they take palm branches, go out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You'll find that in Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. They're singing one of their hymns. They use palm branches as though they are 
waving and fanning perhaps a king. It is a mock military parade as Jesus is leading this crowd, this procession. In the ancient world, a king, having conquered a city, would ride his horse through that city so that all the people in the city knew who their king was. Here comes Jesus, but not on a horse, but on a donkey, just as prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. King of Israel, King of Jerusalem, coming to them. Verse 16 through 19, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As is often the case in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples are quite clueless. They don't understand. But, after he's glorified, that would be a reference kind of threefold. Glorified is to be lifted up for the world to see. We would talk about him being lifted up on the cross. We would talk about him being lifted up from the dead. We would be talking about him being lifted up to heaven in the ascension. But ultimately, the point where it all clicks for the disciples is Pentecost, which would be 10 days after the ascension, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them and they become his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's when they get it. And so after his glorification, the disciples remember all of these things, which would include our Isaiah 50 Old Testament text as well. So we can talk about the Old Testament prophecies like Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 50. We can talk about Psalm 22. We can talk about the beatings and how he suffered and and was crucified, died, and was raised again. We can talk about how he predicted that three times. Lots of things go into this. They don't make the connections until afterwards. Then the crowd that's been following him, that saw him raise Lazarus from the dead... What do they do? Well, they keep bearing witness. They're telling people who this Jesus is and what they've seen him do. And so the crowd, hearing of this, goes out to meet him and to hear more from Jesus himself. And at this, the Pharisees, same as the chief priests back in 10 and 11, recognize their power is slipping away from them. The people are leaving them and going to Jesus. Here, they're not plotting death though, but they seem to be more simply recognizing their own despair and the failure and their loss. This is a almost like a, a statement of grief. All right, verses 20 to 23 to wrap up this text. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Which is a bit of an abrupt ending, but let's get to that in a moment. So among those going to the feast, again, every Jewish male was supposed to, but here are Greeks. Or as some of the epistles, especially the book of Acts, will say, God-fearing Gentiles. 
they have come to believe in the God of the Old Testament, even though they aren't Jews. And they come to Philip, who is from Galilee, so in essence, he's one of them. He's a Gentile. Now, Galilee would have been part of the ancient northern kingdom of Israel, which if you want to refer to all of God's Old Testament people as Jews, that would make him a Jew. But Jew refers to specifically the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. Galilee's not part of that. Galilee would be part of Israel, the northern kingdom, which has been lost long ago as they never repented, they never returned. But here are some from that region who do. Where exactly these particular Greeks are is not said to us, but they've come. We wish to see Jesus. Now, if you just read the response, okay, so Philip runs and tells Andrew, together they run and tell Jesus. If you just read Jesus' response, it would seem like he never answered their question or their request to come and see him. But he does. And again, it's a rather abrupt ending because we let Jesus start a sentence and then we break off the rest of what he says here for another time. But this does answer their question. They want to see Jesus. Well, let me ask you, O Christian, how have you seen Jesus? When we think of Jesus, we think of the crucified and risen Savior. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for Jesus to be lifted up upon the cross. And there, there they will see him. And they will see what he has done for them. How he has shed his blood, laid down his life to forgive them, to take away their sins, to be their Savior. And ours. And for this we rejoice. So it is an answer to the request. Although we're never told about Philip and Andrew returning to these Greeks. But perhaps, perhaps we will see them in paradise. For they were God-fearing. And much of the ministry of the apostles will be to those who were God-fearing to show them the glorification of Jesus. Yeah.